Would you take your Bible and turn to Colossians chapter 1? Colossians chapter 1, we'll read verses 24 through 29. Colossians 1, starting at verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the, of the word of God, that is, the mystery which has been made, hidden from past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. The believers back in the Old Testament days of Israel had a unique way of demonstrating their commitment, their yieldedness to God. It was called the drink offering. The drink offering was a required offering, and it was never offered by itself. It was always in conjunction with another act of worship, another feast, or another celebration, another sacrifice. If you were living back then, uh, you would bring your animal to the sacrifice. You would lead the animal there. It would be alive. And then when you got to the altar, to a special place, the animal would be killed. It would be divided up as it was given instruction in Scripture. And then the part that was to be burned would be laid on the altar and set on fire. Uh, the amount of wine that you brought for the drink offering would depend on the animal that you were offering. If you were bringing a lamb, you would offer about a quart of wine. If you were bringing a ram, you would offer about a third of a gallon of wine. If you were burning a bull, you would burn also about a half a gallon of wine. This was not an inexpensive offering by any means. As the animal was burning... The drink offering consisted of just pouring out the wine over the altar, over this burning animal. The animal was on fire, of course. The altar was very hot. And so as soon as the wine made contact with the animal, it would immediately vaporize and turn into just a puff of steam going up toward heaven. As you stood there watching the smoke and this puff of steam go up toward heaven that used to be a half a gallon of wine, now just a puff of steam, it would be a visible and uh, a complete reminder of what it means to give your life to God, to yield yourself completely to him. Well, sort of related to this story was a great story in uh, the book of First Chronicles about King David. King David was, this was early in his career as king. And the Philistines, an enemy nation, were attacking Israel. They were camped in Bethlehem. David and about 30 of his men are camping in a cave in the hills outside of Bethlehem. <clears throat> we don't know much about these 30 men, but we do know that one of them had a dad whose name was Dudu. Now, what junior high or high school kid wouldn't love to have a dad with a name like that? You'd love it. Somebody comes up to you and says, who is that guy? And you say, well, that's just my dad, Dudu. You'd like that. You thought Jabez's mom was in a bad mood the day he was born. You can imagine the doctor says to her, congratulations, you've just given birth to a healthy baby boy. What would you like to call him? She says, I don't care. We'll call him Doodoo. 
Well, that's not really what I came here to talk about this morning. <laughs> but these 30 guys were there to support David. And while they're in this cave, hiding from the Philistines, David was very thirsty. He was parched with thirst. So he began to express his wish for, for water. And he, Bethlehem is a city. He knows about the wells of Bethlehem. He knows how great this water tastes. So he began to express his wish. He said, oh, that someone would give me a water from the well of Bethlehem. Now, he was not asking someone to go get it for him. He was simply expressing his strong desire and his deep thirst right at that moment. But three guys took the hint. They snuck out. They snuck down the hill, uh, through past all of the enemies, and they found one of the wells in Bethlehem. They got a flask of water, and they brought it back, and they presented it to presented it to David. What should David do with this water? On the one hand, he is the king of Israel. And so he would certainly expect that 30 guys might come and offer him this water and he would drink it. But what should he do with it? On the other hand, there are 30 other guys standing around him who are just as thirsty as he is. There's not enough to go around. So why should he think he should drink the water? Well, David did the best thing he could have done. He poured it out before God as an offering to him. David didn't have an altar. He didn't have any wine with him. So he couldn't do a real drink offering. But instead, he poured out this water as a drink offering before God. And as he poured out the water, he said to the men, he said, far be it from me before my God that I should do this, that I should drink this water. Shall I drink the blood of these men who went at the risk of their lives? Do you see what David was doing? As he poured out this water before God, he was literally giving his thirst, he was giving his need for water to the Lord. That is an ultimate act of sacrifice and yieldedness. David was not just trusting God to meet his need for water. He was giving up his need for water. He was willing to be thirsty in yieldedness to God. That's genuine yieldedness. Genuine yieldedness is not just trusting that God will meet our needs. Genuine yieldedness is giving our needs and our desires, our plans to him and being willing to live without them being met. That's absolute yieldedness. A lot of times when we get together, we love to testify that since we've been trusting Christ, we've always had food on our table. We've always had a roof over our heads. And that's a tremendous testimony of the grace of God. But at the same time, there are millions of godly believers who are hungry, who do not have a place to live, who do not have sufficient clothing for their children, who have committed these needs to God. And instead of simply trusting that God will give me what I'm looking for, that I will live without these needs being met. That's the idea behind the drink offering. When we understand who Jesus is, We understand what he has done to reconcile us. Giving him our needs and our desires is not an irrational, reckless decision. It is a natural response. I want you to keep that in mind, if you would, while we talk about this passage in Colossians chapter 1. The city of Colossae was a city that was in what we call Turkey today. It was very close to two other cities, Laodicea and another city that I can't remember right now. And all three of these cities were about 100 miles east of Ephesus. Back in the days of Queen Esther, back in about 480 B.C., 
Colossae was a great city. It was a powerful city. It was right in the middle of one of the most important trade routes of the world. But by this time that Paul is writing, the trade route was adjusted a little ways away, and now Colossae is just a small little town. It was not very important. The church of Colossae was started during Paul's third missionary journey while he was in Ephesus. Paul did not start this church. In fact, as far as we know, when he was writing this letter, he had never been to Colossae. The church was started by a guy named Epaphras, uh, who was probably saved under the ministry of Paul. Paul is in prison as he writes this letter, as he did several of his letters. And he is in prison, not because he had too many speeding tickets, but because he was serving God. It was an act of persecution. And he's writing to these believers to encourage them to strengthen their faith. The key verse of Colossians, as I see it, is chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, where Paul says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having, uh, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. And I think everything Paul says before and after really leads up to and comes as a result of this concept of living lives that are firmly grounded in our relationship, our walk with Christ. In chapter 1, Paul has been teaching about the supremacy of Christ, the greatness of Christ. In verses 1 through 9, he introduced that concept that Christ is absolutely supreme. He is sufficient. His sacrifice on the cross was all it took to completely pay for sin. And the way we end up worshiping Christ was not just some simple offhanded decision we made. It is the result of God's working and preparing and bringing us literally to himself. In verses, uh, later on in verses 10 through uh, 9 through 14, he begins to explain that the reason we can worship Christ is because we have been rescued from the domain of darkness and we have been brought into God's kingdom. We've been reconciled. That's why we can stand here and worship him today. In verses 10 through 15 through 23, Paul gives one of the clearest presentations of the supremacy of Christ, explaining that Christ is the focus of our worship. The focus of our worship is not the songs we sing, not the style, not the atmosphere, but the person of Christ. And now in verses 24 through 29, Paul is giving us the results. What happens when we're, our lives are devoted to worshiping Christ in his supremacy? What happens when Christ has his rightful place in our lives? And I think he's going to show us three areas of our lives that will change when Christ is rightfully in control. The first change will have a new outlook on suffering. Paul said in verse 24, now I rejoice in my sufferings. And the word he used for sufferings in verse 24 is the same word that was often used to describe Christ's suffering on the cross. So he's talking about acts of persecution, specific forms of persecution that he is rejoicing in. He also said in verse 24 that I have done this in my body. Uh, I have experienced this in my flesh. So he's talking about specific acts of physical torture that he has endured. He's not talking about the kind of persecution where people um, say bad things about us or say mean things to us or make fun of us. He's talking about physical torture, specific acts that he has endured. 
When you read through the book of 2 Corinthians, you see several examples of, of this in Paul's life. Also in verse 24, he said it twice. He said, this is for your sake. And then he said, it is for the sake of the body, which is the church. So his suffering, his persecution was not because of his own arrogance or his own sin. But this was an act carried out against him because of his relationship with Christ and because of his ministry in the church. This is persecution that he's talking about, that he is enduring. At the end of verse 24, he said all of this was filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, he certainly was not talking about anything lacking in the suffering of Christ on the cross because he has just spent the last chapter explaining that his suffering on the cross was sufficient. It was everything that was necessary. We don't add anything to what Christ did for us when he paid for our sin. It's all complete. We just receive it by faith and trust. So that's not what he was talking about. I think what he was talking about was that he was enduring the suffering that Christ would be enduring if Christ were still on the earth. That, Christ was, uh, that Paul was simply enduring the suffering of Christ. And then he talked about, he used the word affliction in verse 24, which is different from suffering. It is kind of a general sense of distress, a general pressure. It's like carrying around this weight, this load all the time, this sense of, of, of trouble, of difficulty. But the most important thing Paul said in verse 24 about his suffering, he said, I rejoice in it. I rejoice. And that was the attitude that many believers had in the early church, as you read in the book of Acts, a sense of rejoicing, recognizing the value of this kind of suffering. Would you keep a finger here and come back with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. First Peter chapter 4, verse 12, and this is Peter's perspective on suffering. He said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Peter said it twice in verse 12. Don't be surprised at your suffering. Don't think of this as something that is strange that is happening to you when it's your turn to suffer. And what he means by that is when it's your turn to go through difficulty and suffering, don't look at this as something that does not fit in your life, that should not be in your life. Don't make the assumption that God would never want you to go through something like this. That somehow his plan is to prosper you. But instead, when it's our turn to go through suffering, we need to recognize this is a valuable part of the plan of God for my life. This is part of his purpose for me. It's the same thing he said back in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, when he talked about the trial of God being like a fire that will strengthen and build our faith. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, he called this trial the fiery ordeal, a phrase that's used in other places in Scripture to talk about the refining furnace where gold and silver is refined. And that's the intent of the trial of God, the trials that God allows in our lives. When it's our turn to suffer, 
whether it's persecution or just general difficulty and trial, it's so easy for us to think of this as something that must be wrong somehow, that does not belong in my life. It's easy to begin thinking that God somehow is not very involved in this. Somehow he's lost touch with what I'm going through. To assume that either God doesn't know what's happening or he doesn't care that much about what I'm going through in my life right now. But we need to counter that false assumption with the truth that God is intentionally allowing this for a positive, valuable, necessary purpose in my life right now. That this is not meant to destroy me. It's not meant to discourage me. It is meant to build me up. It's meant to strengthen me, to help me in my faith and my walk with Christ. That's how we look at trial as not surprising, not something that does not belong. The temptation to think of trial and difficulty as something that is foreign, that doesn't belong in our lives, is not just an American Western temptation. It is a common human temptation. A lot of times we use Chinese believers as an example of how to face persecution. And they are an example, but they struggle too uh, with their attitude towards struggling. All of us do. It is a natural human temptation to assume that God would never want trouble in our lives, that he would want to, to be nice to us, to prosper us, to give us what we need to meet our needs for significance, to meet our needs, all the things that we want, to assume this is also what God wants. That's not the case. So they have to face that too. There is a false doctrine that is spreading like wildfire through China. It is the prosperity gospel. And it exactly fits in with Chinese culture. This idea that God's desire is that everything that matters is in this life. And that he wants to prosper you. He wants you to be healthy. He wants to to grant you your desires and your wishes. He wants you to feel prosperous and successful. And now Christians are telling them the same thing. This is what they've been growing up with for the last 60 years. That nothing that matters happens outside of this life. Everything that matters is right here and now. And everything that you do needs to somehow lead to success and prosperity. That's not the message of God. God intentionally uses difficulty, suffering, and trial to build us up, to strengthen us, to refine our faith. If Christ has the rightful place in our lives, we recognize that. We have a new perspective on suffering. If you come back with me to Colossians, a second change. We'll have a fresh commitment to the mission of Christ. In verse 25, Paul said, Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God, bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. He called this his stewardship, this management, this responsibility that God has given him to spread the gospel, to spread the preaching of Christ to all nations. He goes on in verse 26 to explain the mystery, that this idea is a mystery. And the mystery is something that has never been revealed in the Old Testament, but today it is being revealed through the New Testament and us today. What is the mystery? It is found in verse 27, the fact that Christ, the Messiah, who was promised all through the Old Testament, who came to the earth, who died on the cross to pay for sin, who rose from the dead in victory over sin and went back to heaven, now lives in the church. And this is our hope of glory. The fact that Christ lives in the church affecting both Jew and Gentile together in one body. This is the mystery. It's a message that we take to the world. 
And then he went on in verse 28 to explain that we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. This is our goal, the goal behind the mission. Christ has his rightful place in our lives. We have a natural desire to spread the message of Christ in part of his mission. This is one of the reasons that I find so inspiring to be involved in missions today, especially in a place like China. With 1.3 billion people, 20% of the world's population live in this one country under atheistic, communist, authoritarian rule against the church. When China became a communist nation 60 years ago, the stated priority of the government was to get rid of the influence of Western Christianity. This was back in 1949. Missionaries were expelled, churches were closed, and during those dark days of history in China, it looked like God was dead. It looked like he was doing nothing. Before 1949, there had been about 150 years of missionary work. And in 1949, uh, things began to change. And since then, in the past 60 years, the church has grown faster and stronger than it has in any other country of the world. And in those 60 years, it has grown faster and stronger than it has during any other time period of the world. Back in 1949, there were about 4 million Christians in the country. Today, there are more like 100 million Christians in the country after 60 years of intimidation, control, and persecution. So 150 years of missionary work produced 4 million Christians. 60 years of communism and persecution produced 100 million Christians. So we can say, in a way, that Mao Zedong is one of the world's greatest evangelists. (laughs) Only that was not his intent. And that may sound sort of impressive, but it's nothing unusual with God. Because he always accomplishes his purpose regardless of what people are trying to do. How many times in human history have the enemies of God set out to destroy the work of God and have actually ended up doing his work? That's exactly what has happened here. And how many times in history have the people of God believed them and have said, we're done. There's no way we can continue. The work of God is over. Well, God has proven over and over again that's just not true. When he makes a plan, he carries it out. He is calmly accomplishing everything he sets out to accomplish. He's not sitting in heaven worried, chewing his fingernails, trying to come up with a plan B today. But he is calmly carrying out his will, using whoever will to accomplish his purpose. And nobody can stop him. Isaiah says nobody frustrates the plans of God. That's why it's inspiring to be involved in the mission of Christ. A third change that will take place we'll have a new perspective on serving other people. Paul said in verse 29, For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. And he said up earlier in verse 25 that I am a minister of the church according to the stewardship of God. He's making it clear his position was a position of service. Would you look back with me at Philippians chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Paul gives his own example of the same concept. In verse 17, he said, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way 
and share your joy with me. What is he saying there? You remember the drink offering. So he's saying, even if my whole life is poured out like this drink offering, so that there's nothing left but a puff of steam going up toward heaven, and not all that slowly either. It's on its way, and I've disappeared. No one can even remember a thing about me or anything that I've accomplished. I've left no marks behind with my name on it. Even if that's the way it is, he said, I don't only just accept this, but I rejoice in it. But then he said something even worse in verse 18. You all need to have the same attitude, the same sense of rejoicing, even if nobody can trace anything back to your name after you're gone. That's living your life in service. That's living your life as a drink offering. And if I was going to be honest, I would have to say that I struggle with that. I think most of us would. I spent a lot of years as a pastor and now a missionary, and I've found in ministry that if if I can't see the purpose of what I'm doing, it's very hard for me to stay motivated. If it seems like I'm wasting my time. I don't know how many times I've complained to my wife through ministry. It just seems like I'm spinning my wheels. We're not getting anywhere. And it's hard to stay motivated when you feel like that's what's happening. And you all know, pastors, you know, everybody makes fun of pastors. They only work one day a week, and nobody can seem to imagine what you do all week. And I live with that all the time. But when you're a missionary, especially a missionary that lives in the States, it's even worse. That's like a black hole. (laughs) Nobody could even imagine what you could find to do in a week's time. And because of that, I've always been a little sensitive about the appearance of wasting time, of, of, of not spending time profitably. Our lives consist of, as anybody in ministry, a lot of interruptions. But I've always loved interruptions. I love setting aside something important to do something even more important. That's great. But the idea of just wasting time is difficult. When I started out in ministry, I was 25 years old, and I was the pastor of this church in Portland. I was the senior pastor of the church. I was also the youngest adult in the church at the same time. And most of these people have been married twice as long as I'd been alive and I'm supposed to try to teach and lead them. And I had a lot to learn. But we had this very old woman. She was probably 57 years old at the time. (laughs) And uh, she had some quirks about her. She was kind of eccentric. She lived by herself, uh, didn't have a car, and uh, needed a lot of help. She didn't have any family in the area, at least no one who would admit to being her family. So uh, the church had to really take care of her. Uh, She lived just a few blocks away from me, So I ended up getting called down there a lot. Uh, We all kind of had our jobs. We had somebody who took care of her finances. A couple of people would take her shopping. And my job was usually to take her to her doctor's appointment or solve an emergency uh, because I lived closer to her than anyone else. So if she saw an opossum running through her backyard and she wanted it trapped and killed, she'd call me. Or if she got her telephone cord wrapped up in her purse, all wrapped around her neck, which seemed to happen quite often, uh, she would call me. Uh, to come and try to solve these types of situations. Don't get any ideas. <laughs> you don't have a job description like that, huh? Uh, she lived by herself, but she had, I think, maybe two or three dogs and four or five cats whom she never let out of her house for any reason whatsoever. Uh, she had cat boxes for them. And if one cat box got full, she'd just buy another one and set it down beside the old one. And... So you can imagine how it smelled in there. Never washed her clothes. When she got tired of wearing them, she'd toss them and get something else at Goodwill. And so she had piles and piles of dirty laundry. She had 
cat boxes all over the place and dishes in her kitchen were just packed with these dishes that had dried on food and grease all over the place. And it was a hard place to be. And I remember one day I was working outside at her house. I'd been working there for maybe an hour and a half, two hours doing something. And I finished. So I knocked on her door and I said, okay, Eunice, I'm, I'm through. I'm going to go back to the church. She said, well, I made you some coffee. Yeah. Normally, that would be a temptation which was beyond what I could bear. But I had sort of promised myself I would never eat or drink anything at her house. So I said, well, you know, I'm really in a hurry. I just need to get going. She said, but I made this just for you. You can stand right out here and drink it. You don't even have to come in. So I said, okay. She brought me out a cup of coffee, and I took it and pulled out a couple of hat hairs, cat hairs and wiped the rim off and took a sip of coffee and got a mouth full of something. I did not know what it was. It felt like kitty litter. And I did not know what to do. I wanted to spit it out. I wanted to vomit. But she was standing right there watching me. So I, I didn't know what to do, so I swallowed it. And it stayed down. I was glad for that. <laughs> and... Uh, so then I had a great idea. I said, Eunice, I'm really in a hurry. Do you mind if I take this with me and I'll bring the cup back to you later? And she said, okay. So I took it home and I dumped it out and I found out that what was in my mouth was only coffee grounds. It was regular brew coffee that she had made, like instant coffee. She just poured hot water over it. So it was okay. But I have to admit that a lot of what I did for her, I did with an attitude of resentment. Uh, because she didn't seem to have very much respect for my busy schedule. Uh, she almost treated me as if I were a servant or something like that. And it was hard. And God used her to teach me to change my attitude toward that. A lot of times people would say to me, you seem to have a real servant's attitude. And I took that as a compliment. I love being thought of as a servant. I hated being treated like a servant. Now certainly she had things to learn about how to treat people. But I had a lot to learn about my own attitude toward genuine yieldedness in service. If Christ has a rightful place in our lives, these are some changes we can look forward to. They're evaluation points for us. And we can each ask ourselves, even right now, what is my attitude toward suffering? How do I look at suffering in my life? Whether it's persecution or just general trouble and trial, how do I look at it? Do I resent when they come into my life? Do I get angry with God? Do I start thinking God needs to remove these in order for him to really be God in my life? Do I start questioning him when I have trial and difficulty and overwhelming suffering? If so, then I need to change. I need a different perspective. And I need to recognize that God is using these difficulties to build my life, to strengthen me, to do something that I desperately need done in my life. What is my perspective on the mission? Am I actively engaged in the mission of Christ? I'm a missionary, you're a missionary. And God has called us to work together to spread the good news of Christ throughout the earth. The church is not something that just sends out missionaries. The church is made up of missionaries. All of us together have been placed in a foreign culture around people that are steeped in darkness who need the message of Christ. Are you actively engaged in some way in the mission of the church? And how do you look at service? How do you respond when you get treated like a servant? If you find areas that need to change in those three realms, the solution 
is not to try to change those three areas. It's not to try to be more open to suffering or the mission or service. The solution is to get closer to Christ. The solution is to allow Christ to have his rightful place in your life, the place that he deserves and demands as your Lord and Master. And as you grow in your response to him, then you find yourself open to suffering, involved in the mission, and ready to serve God. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, today we praise you, we thank you as Lord and Master. We're thankful that you sent your Son to pay the price for our sin. And through his work on the cross, we go free as we place our faith and trust in you alone for our salvation. Lord, I'm thankful that you've given us a message like that, a message of hope and security in Christ. And as we look at our own lives, Lord, I pray that you would challenge each of us in our walk with you. Lord, show us areas where we need to grow, where we need to become more like you, where we need to see Christ and be yielded to him. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.